0: I think it is now. Okay. Jesus often commands us to do impossible things. I'm going to give you the purpose of your life here this morning. Every single one of us have the exact same purpose if we are in Christ. And regardless if you're in Christ or not, the reason you exist, whether you realize it or not, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is the ultimate end or the ultimate purpose of your life. We have a sub-purpose given in Matthew chapter chapter 28 that Jesus gives to his church. It's called the Great Commission. Many of us know this Great Commission that Jesus gave us. He doesn't just give it to churches or the church in general, like the Big C Church as a whole. The Big C Church, the church global, is made up of individual church members. And this Great Commission doesn't simply go out to churches that have names on it. So the Great Commission goes to Christ Church Carbondale. Okay, that's true, but the Great Commission goes to the people of Christchurch Carbondale, you, into the nitty-gritty details of everyday life. When you're at school, when you're at work, when you're at home, wherever you find yourself, when you're having lunch with your neighbor or lunch with your friend, you are on a mission. Jesus has given you the purpose of your life and the mission of your life. We are not free to define our life according to the way we want to define our life. You don't get to determine your own purpose in life. God does. And in Matthew 28, Jesus says, here's why you exist. Here's your mission. Here's your life mission. It's going to come out in different ways. It's going to maybe look different from person to person, but make no mistake, this is your mission. And he invites us into an impossible mission. He tells the group in Matthew 28 and verses 18 to 20, the 11 disciples who are standing around him, he said to them, go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I want you for a second to consider the impossibility of that command. Imagine being one of the 11, you've never traveled more than 30 miles outside of the area you're now standing And you hear Jesus saying, go into all the world. You don't even know what the known world is at this time. You don't have the means to travel to all the world. And Jesus tells you, go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them, and then teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And if you could experience just the heaviness of that command if we don't understand what comes before the command and after the command, just the heaviness of that command go into all the world. If I was one of the 11 standing there, just hearing that that command, I would be thinking, that's impossible. How could we possibly do that? How could we possibly fulfill that command? You want us to do what? Jesus, how are we going to do this? Well, it's helpful for us to feel the impossibility of that command if it's on our shoulders. But the neat thing is there's something before that verse and something after that verse. Because before the Great Commission, we get these words. Behold, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So on the front end of that command, we get Jesus telling us, I have all authority in all of heaven and all of earth. It belongs to me. The same kind of authority I have in heaven, that's the exact same kind of authority I have on earth. Jesus' dominion of power isn't relegated to the heavenly places. Jesus' dominion of power and authority is here on this earth, every square inch of it. And he then gives us this command, and then at the tail end of the command, he tells us this. And I will be with you even to the end of the age. So the one who has all authority in heaven and earth tells us what to do. Tells us our mission in life. Tells the eleven to teach those all that that Jesus had commanded them. That means we have the same mission that those eleven did. And behold, I will be with you. I'm not going to leave you alone. You're not going to be on your own. I'm not patting you on the back and giving you a nice little butt swat and saying, Go get them, tiger. I'm saying, I will actually be with you. This Jesus is the one who would go to the cross, resurrect from the dead, ascend into heaven, promise to return to gather his bride. And he sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to accomplish this very mission and just says, I'm going to be with you. And I have all power and all authority. So what are you worried about? Point being, Jesus invites us into the impossible. We can't make the Great Commission happen. But we've invited into, been invited into this mission, this global mission, to watch Jesus work. He has invited us into the very mission of God to rescue sinners from themselves. And friends, you and I are products of that mission going forward. There have been people who have come alongside this Jesus who's called them on mission and begin to tell other people about the work of Jesus. And then people would become Christians. They would be baptized and then be, begin to learn to walk with Jesus as well. And then they'd leave their homes. They would pick up their whole families and they would go across the globe and this message began to spread from Jerusalem and then it went out from Jerusalem to Judea and then out from Judea to Samaria and then out to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And it kept going and it kept going. This unstoppable force, finally, 2,000 years approximately later, made it into your heart. And somebody told you about this message. Somebody told you about this Jesus The mission kept going. It didn't stop. And now we are invited into this mission. Something impossible. The invitation to be on mission with Jesus. And we are going to see today a similar story. Jesus invited his disciples into something impossible. And we're going to see the disciples with this invitation. We're going to see them be confused and, and wonder, how's this going to be? How is this going to happen? We don't have the resources. We don't have the means. How can we ever do what you're calling us to do? And then we're going to see a little boy who's going to simply offer what he has. And we're going to see Jesus work. It's truly amazing. John chapter 5. I want you to see the invitation. Excuse me. John chapter 6. The invitation. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is called the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias was a city among the west side, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and around that area of the sea, they called it the Sea of Tiberias. Verse 2, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, sat there with his disciples, sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, and lifting up his eyes then, and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? Where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? This is the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. This is, in fact, the only account other than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, so the death and resurrection. This is the only story that is in every gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's interesting. If you're familiar with your Bible... And the Gospels in particular, you will know that at one point Jesus in this story feeds 5,000 and just a little while longer he actually feeds 4,000. And there's speculation based on the number of loaves and the bread that's left over in the baskets that this is symbolic of Jesus bringing the Gospel to the Jews with feeding 5,000 and then Jesus bringing the Gospel to the Gentiles feeding the 4,000. Some of that is speculation, some of it does have merit. But here, Jesus is doing something specific with a group of people who are going to the Passover meal. So most likely, almost all Jewish people. So this is the only account that we have in all four Gospels, other than the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in each account, we get some information that kind of fills in the story. So we get a full picture of what's going on here, the timeline. And in a common thread, there's a common thread. Something that's in all four accounts is this invitation that Jesus gives out to his disciples. And it's fascinating. He's testing his disciples by inviting them into something impossible. Now, in verse 5, he asks the question, where may we buy bread, plural? Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, here's how the invitation goes. So, apparently, he turns to Philip and says, where can we buy bread? And then he says to the disciples, this, you give them something to eat. He tells the disciples to give this massive crowd something to eat. He invites Philip in this story, inviting Philip. He invites Philip to do something with him. In the next verse, we find out that he's baiting him here. He's setting the hook. He's testing Philip. He's going to teach Philip something about himself. But he invites Philip into this mission. There's a group of people here, and they need something to eat. So where are we? Where are we going to get food for all these people. He invites Philip into his work. The same thing with the mission of God we see in Matthew chapter 28, going to all the world, making disciples. We are invited into the mission of God, rescuing sinners throughout this globe. Here, Jesus invites Philip into the problem of 5,000 people who have hungry, hungry bellies. And Philip's going to respond. And then the other disciples are going to to respond. I want you to see in verse 6, the teaching playfulness of Jesus. I love Jesus. In Luke 24, we, Jesus, we see Jesus actor. He's walking on the road to Emmaus. And it actually says that he acted like he was going to continue on. So the disciples walking with him would plead with him to stay. So he acted like he was going to keep walking. See, God, I'm going to keep on. For the very point of inspiring within them a response, no, 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 stay, Jesus the actor. Well, we see Jesus also here, the playfulness of Jesus, and I love it because we get to see a little bit of his personality. And Jesus said this in verse 6, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do, so he's not asking Philip a question to get information. He's doing something completely different. He's inviting Philip into something impossible for Philip to wonder how is this going to happen he's doing something specific with Philip and the disciples and Jesus in fact knows exactly what he's doing with us he knows our weaknesses he knows our strengths and the mission of God is it kind of pummels us here today in a good way it's going it's like the the bait is on the hook and we are hooked as well it's not just Philip that's hooked. It's us that begin to be intrigued. What's what's Jesus going to do here? What's he going to teach us here? And so the bait is set. The hook hook is set, not just for Philip and not just the disciples, but hopefully, hopefully for us. What's Jesus doing in us here today? What's he inviting us into? Not just Philip, not just the disciples. What is this big grand narrative, this big grand story? What is Jesus inviting us into when he invites us into the impossible? Jesus Is about to teach Philip through showing him his power. And he's going to teach us as well. There's going to be three responses that we see from this request from Jesus. Where are we going to buy food to eat? We're going to see Philip and the disciples, the rest of the disciples here, and Andrew. So we're going to kind of put them together and just say the disciples. Then we're going to see a response of a little boy and his willingness to give up something. And thirdly, we're going to receive the response of the crowd. Okay, so just a real simple outline here. The disciples, the little boy. Okay, kiddos, we're going to talk about Jesus hanging out with the little boy here in a second. The little boy, and then the crowd. Got it? So first, we're going to see the disciples. Second, we're going to see a little boy. And third, we're going to see the crowd. Simple outline. First, let's look at the disciples in verse 7 and 8. Oh, come on, Andy. Come on, I tell you what. Silence all cell phones, everyone. (laughs) You know what? The neat thing is, and this is one of the things I love about our church, this is like, that doesn't bother me. If your cell phone goes off, just turn it down, but it's okay. We'll just all look at you and mock you together. (laughs) We're family. Verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not... But worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So here's the setup. There is at least 5,000 males here going to Jerusalem. Some of them would have gone on their way by themselves, they wouldn't have brought their whole family, but majority of them would have brought their whole family. So many commentators estimate up to 20,000. Some say it could be you know, 10, 15 to 20. It's just kind of an estimate, but the size of Jewish families at the time, most likely there's at least 20,000. There's just a big crowd. It's a big crowd. And when Jesus said to, said to Philip, where are we going to buy food for this? Immediately, he begins to think in natural terms, which is how we all would be thinking. And he, he says eight months, eight, basically eight months of wages wouldn't even buy enough food for all of these people. It's impossible for us to do something about this, Jesus. Now, it's facet, to me it's fascinating the humanness of the disciples and how quick they are to forget the supernatural power of Jesus. Because Jesus' power has been on display already as he's been walking in their midst and as they've been observing him. But naturally, like we do, we forget God's provision in our life. We forget the supernatural things, and we are quick to panic yet again when something else comes up that's a small detail in our life that we need God to take care of. disciples are very, very human. They're walking with Jesus. And Philip's like, this is literally Jesus. If we had eight months' wages here, there's nothing that we could do. And then Andrew comes along and says basically the same thing. Here's all I see. Basically, I see a couple Lunchables. And there's 20,000 people. we got a couple turkey lunchables. That's all we have. Even if we broke up the little crackers into quarters, it, would, it wouldn't do anything. Like, what are, are these few loaves of bread, and what are these two fish going to do to feed? I mean, one fish is enough for, like, maybe one person to sort of get. It's kind of like a meal at Panera. It sort of satisfies But what is this going to do? And so both of them, both Philip and Andrew, were kind of using them as the, kind of the, the figureheads here in this situation with, uh, of the disciples. The, the disciples, at least these two, are responding in disbelief. We can't do this. Nothing can be done. We can't on our own or even apparently with you, they're thinking, we can't solve this problem. And I just have to ask you, when an impossible situation comes your way, when God invites you into a situation that is, is the mission of God, I'm, I wonder how often I and we drift into this same sort of mentality. What can be done? Like, what are the equivalent situations today where we would stand with Philip and Andrew and say, yeah, like, nothing can be done here. Could be unsaved friends, families, co-workers. It could be a struggling marriage, could be rebellious teenagers, could be struggling at school, could be a bully at school. It could be difficulties of all sorts. And at different stages of your life, an impossible situation feels very impossible, regardless if other people recognize it as impossible or not. What impossible situations would be your equivalent where you would stand with Andrew and with Philip and say, What can be done? We don't have the resources. We don't have the means. So with a unified voice, at least these two, they think naturally, and they just see it as simply untenable. Can't work. It's impossible. So there's their response. But then there's another response of this little boy. we don't have a huge interaction here. We actually don't have any words of this little boy. All we have is his actions. This little boy came, maybe with lunch from his mom, packed his little lunch bag, and he's got his little lunch, and he comes. He's the only one here with all these people. And isn't it interesting with up to 20,000 people that none of them planned for lunch? None of them planned for the journey ahead? None of them had food? Only this little boy had food. Where did he come from? Did he come from a neighboring community? We don't know the answers to all these questions. All we have is his action. We have the response of the disciples, and then we have the response of this little boy in verse 9. There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now here's all we know. Again, no words from him. Here's all we know. The little boy gave up all he had. There was a need presented to him, and the little boy said, you can have it. I have loaves of bread and a couple fish here. Now this was at great cost to this little boy. Do we know if he had an abundant supply? Where did he get this food? If you give up your only food that you have as a little boy? I mean, was he, did he have a family? Did he even have a mom running around? Was he a little orphan child running around? We don't know the answer to those questions, but it certainly would have been risky for him to give up the food that he has. All we have is his action, And we know, based on the following parts of the story and the narrative, that he actually did give up. When the need was presented to him, he gave it up to Jesus. He said, here. So if we contrast the response of these disciples, and then if we think about the, the mysterious little boy, we see a staggering difference. We see a little boy who's willing, he's available, he's Offering up the only thing he has and said, you know what, Jesus, it's not much, but if you need it, if you and the disciples want it, you can have it. I don't know what difference it would make. Again, I'm kind of putting my thoughts and thinking what this little boy would be thinking, but I don't know what, what difference this would make. I don't know. It wouldn't feed many, but if you want it, I'll give it to you. Here. And the actions of this little boy speak so much louder than even the words he may or may not have said. Here, Jesus, I don't have much. I have very, very little. I'm just a boy, but here all I have is you. I don't know what you could possibly do with it or what you could possibly do for all these people with it, but you can have it. In fact, he could have been thinking, why would he even want this little bit of food? Why would he even want this little bit of bread? Is he just going to take it himself or the disciples going to go and replenish their Bodies with this food, what are they going to do? One little boy willing to give Jesus what he has and join with Jesus speaks volumes. This little boy offers up everything, much like the woman who gave little, and Jesus looked to her and said to the people who had money and the tax collectors and the Pharisees and the people who were around, and he said, you see, this woman, she's given more because she gave all that she had. This little boy simply gives up what he has. What does Jesus do with what the little boy gave him? What's he do? A little boy's available, and I want you to see what happens. The availability of this little boy, everybody there gets to see the power of God because the little boy was willing to join Jesus on this mission. The 5,000 were fed Up to 20,000 people were fed. The disciples got to see yet another sign that Jesus did because the little boy is just simply saying, here, just use it. Jesus showing us his glory by allowing the little boy to come alongside of him and, and join him in his provision. It's amazing. Jesus does the impossible. Look at verse 10 through 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those. Left by those who had eaten. So, through one little boy's willingness to give up his lunch, they see Jesus do the impossible. Naturally, it doesn't make sense. And yet, it happens. Eight months' wages couldn't secure even a little bit of food. But Jesus gave them an all-they-could-eat buffet greater than the buffet even at the Golden Corral, believe it or not multiplied the fish, multiplied the loaves, these people ate their fill. Naturally, they couldn't even, with all that money, purchase just a little, and Jesus does so much for these people that they ate their fill, and then they had so much left over that it filled up 12 baskets full. Now, there's speculation, I said at the beginning, what the 12 basketfuls fulls mean, the feeding 5,000 and the seven baskets full, the feeding of the 4,000, but it may have been Piper who said this, and it stuck with me years ago. Um, could it be that Jesus was saying, I'll take care of you? How many disciples were there with Jesus? Twelve. And could it be Jesus giving them a message, hey, if you'll, if you'll offer up, if you'll join me in this, I'll take care of you. Now, they're leftover fragments Okay, this isn't the new Mercedes-Benz. This isn't the, this isn't the, but I'll take care of you. You're going to have your belly filled as well. Maybe. There's 12 baskets and they're full afterwards. I'll take care of you. It's almost like Jesus saying, if you'll do what I ask you to do, I will take care of you. And it's fasting here. I love the frugal nature of Jesus as a quick sidebar. I love the frugal nature of Jesus because Jesus, one, gives thanks to, to his heavenly father. And if Jesus gave thanks to the heavenly father for every bite that he took as he gave thanks and broke the bread, and as we go to lunch today, wherever it may be, and we break bread and It goes into our mouth. If Jesus received this food as a gift from the God of the universe, from his heavenly Father, wouldn't it be wise for us to reconsider the magnitude of giving thanks before we eat? I don't even deserve this food. It's a gift. God doesn't have to give me food. He doesn't have to give the birds the worm yet he does he doesn't have to provide prey to the lion and yet he does he doesn't have to provide my meal this afternoon and yet he does jesus gives thanks and then afterwards with the food that's bountiful he said don't let any of it go to waste there's a commercial on the radio right now where it's like a knife and a fork hitting the hitting the the plate heard of that river radio radio people okay no (laughs) it's just me and it the whole thing is trying to build inside of you a like this this kind of like knee-jerk reaction to not scraping your plate off in the trash but to to keep your leftovers to like preserve and to save here is jesus just saying hey don't be wasteful if you've got it it's a gift don't throw away the gifts Now, if your food's moldy, this isn't a sermon on not cleaning out your refrigerator, okay? Um, In fact, most of us need to clean out our refrigerators because there's dangerous diseases growing in there. Not in ours, baby, thank you. (laughs) Ours is very clean. But every time we take a bite, every time we eat a meal, let's not take it for granted because each bite, each flavor that we taste on the taste buds, the different part of our tongue, that is a gift from God. It's a precious gift from the God of the universe. And what we see in this is Jesus stewarding the miracle well. He was not wasteful. When God shows up, when God does a miracle, when God does something, nothing goes to waste. Even if we don't understand how this is going, seems like this is a waste, or he didn't come through in this instance, or he did come through in this instance, we were confused about what's going on. When Jesus shows up, when he does what he does, he's doing a million things and nothing goes wasted even if we don't see it being used or not. So the first response was was the disciples, the second response was this little boy, and then the third response is the crowd. Because this, uh, already the people were following Jesus because of the miracles he was doing, not because they believed him to be the Messiah, but they wanted in on the miracles. They wanted the stuff. So heal the sick, okay? feed our bellies, we want food, we want to follow you Jesus because of what you're doing, not necessarily who you are. And so as he fed the 5,000, and multiplied the loaves and the fish, the crowd began to mutter, and they began to get excited. And they said, you know what? We need to do something with this Jesus. This Jesus is providing for us. Is he the prophet? Is he the one? Let's do something with this Jesus. And they respond, and they want Jesus on their own terms. And if you want Jesus on your own terms, you can't have him. Look at verse 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him a king. Okay, pause. This is Palm Sunday. This is the kind of king they wanted. And they thought they were welcoming into Jerusalem on Sunday. The king who will re-establish Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, who will make us great again, who will overthrow this stubborn Roman Empire, who continues to advance itself through mass genocide, through all sorts of evils, and Jesus is going to finally vanquish this evil and re-establish God's way on this earth. They wanted this kind of king they wanted to come and make Jesus king now and and hear me say this Jesus will come again he will come again and he will establish a global reign but not yet not in this way they want Jesus on their own terms Uh, so anyways they wanted Jesus on their own terms okay and and Jesus won't be had. He won't be caught by the crowd. He won't be defined by the crowd. When the crowd wants him to do something, Jesus, he's not convinced by them that he should do what they want him to do. Jesus slips away. So what did they want? They wanted this prophet king. Let's put him on the throne. Let's take him by force. Let's charge the gates of the enemy. Let's overthrow Pilate. Things will go well for us. He will fill our bellies. He will fill our pockets. He will bring us to a place of esteem yet again. Oh, Solomon was a great king. David was a great king. But oh, this King Jesus, he could be even a greater king. The Messiah, the prophet, he is here. The people love and people have always loved to define who Jesus is, control Jesus. People like a Jesus who thinks the way that they think, likes the things that they like, agrees with them on everything that they think. A Jesus who would never ask them to do something they don't want to do. People have always been trying to define their own Jesus. Jesus on my terms. That's not the Jesus I know as you're reading from the Scriptures. Well, then the Jesus you know is the Jesus of your own mind, not the Jesus of the Scriptures. Because this Jesus is secure enough to withdraw from a crowd, chanting His name, wanting to give Him earthly power. Who else do you know on this earth secure enough to do that? Mm Mm-mm. I won't let your chanting and your superficial praise divert me from what God my Father is calling me to do. This Jesus is a man of resolve and of grit and focus and determination. I will only do what I see my Father doing and your chanting and superficial pats on the back, I don't care. We love him. Jesus wasn't distracted by him. So Jesus withdraws. This was not the kind of kingdom He was there to set up at this point. And to be sure, He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And every king, every power in this world is nothing compared to the power of Jesus. And yet Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, allowed Himself willingly to walk into Jerusalem and walk to be judged by the very kings that He was giving breath to. Jesus was on a rescue mission, not to establish a temporary earthly kingdom that comes and goes. Jesus was there. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came. He was on a mission to perfectly fulfill the law of God and He would not be sidetracked by the crowd. He was there to die in the place of sinners as the sinless sacrifice. He was there to defeat Satan, sin and even death. He was there to save He came to establish a kingdom bigger than the walls of Jerusalem, a kingdom that would go beyond Jerusalem, that would bust into our hearts today. We're here today because He came to establish a kingdom beyond the walls of Jerusalem. Praise God! He came to save even Gentiles. Us. He came to seek and save the lost. They wanted Jesus on their terms. And friends, if they got Him on their terms we would not be saved. But Jesus, Jesus wouldn't let it happen. So we come to Jesus on His terms. We come to Jesus on His terms. You want Jesus your way? You can't have Him. But, And it's fascinating. Jesus would rather be alone. Just would rather be alone than with a crowd of people who just wanted to make him king. So here's a big aha moment. Don't be like the crowd. Don't be like the crowd. So we come, who are we to be like? If we're the disciples, let's move from skepticism about what Jesus can do and who he is. And let's learn from this little boy. Kiddos, okay, we're going to learn something from a little boy just like you, who is willing to say, Jesus, yeah, you need it? Here. The disciples were confused. The boy, by his actions, revealed that he trusted Jesus. This boy would have no idea what Jesus was going to do. But here's the deal. This little boy was available. And he opened his hands and said, here. Jesus, all I have, it's yours. I don't have a lot. I don't know what you can do with me. I don't know what I have to offer. In fact, I know I don't have much. And if God's grace enables you to come to him this morning, and you say, Jesus, I believe you. I'm yours. You will see him do the impossible. He will save you. He may not change the situation that you're in in the way you want him to. But he will be with you. And just like Joseph in the book of Genesis, I would rather have God with me in a prison than me alone in power. And you can have Jesus with you today here. And if you're walking with the Lord, you've been walking with him for a long time, you look at your life and you feel like you're in the exact same situation where you're just looking around and saying, there's no resources here. Jesus, what can we possibly do? I have a situation in my mind I'm thinking of. This is impossible. No, it's not. Jesus can do something. So by God's grace, let's open our hands and say, Jesus, I trust you. All that I am is yours. If he's asking you to step out in a particular area of your life, maybe tell somebody about Jesus, this nagging feeling that's been with you, that I should talk to them, that person may not be here tomorrow. You have an opportunity to talk to them and trust that God may, maybe just maybe, you'll get to see, just like that little boy, just like those disciples, you'll get to see Jesus do the impossible. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this story. I thank you for narratives like this that are just so rich, so full, so wonderful, And Jesus, I thank you for your playfulness. I thank you for your playfulness. I just, Jesus, this is what's so cool. Because in stories like this, like, okay, the cell phone goes off. Jesus, in your mind, everybody out here, and I'm still praying here, I'm just kind of talking. But in our minds, do we think Jesus is like tapping his foot because the phone went off? And he's like, oh my gosh, everybody's going to be distracted from me. Oh my gosh, is he just a grumbler, angry Jesus sitting over here who's always just watching us out of the corner of our eye, just kind of judging us? Or is he the Jesus who's inviting us into wonder, who just takes fish and loaves from a little boy and just says, thank you, I'll take that? Watch this. And then sits back. I can imagine Jesus getting his lawn chair. Or a chair he's built. He's a carpenter. He's kind of leaning back and just kind of watching seeing that little boy. Hey, buddy. Thanks so much for the fish. Thanks so much for the loaves. Look what I can do with it. And here we're talking about that little boy. Don't know his name. God, I thank you that you don't have this mission independent of us. It's secured because of Christ and his work alone. But we're invited into this thing to come alongside and just watch you work. We're invited into the impossible. We can't, so going and making disciples, I can't make somebody be a Christian. That's something I can't do. So we're talking about you today, Jesus, and we're asking that you either save some here this morning or invite us into areas of our lives of of just trusting you that we've not been able to trust before. Because we just stood just like Philip, just like Andrew, and said, what could be done? Just to open our hands, open our hearts, and trust you. Jesus, in your name, we pray. Amen. Let's worship.